Chapter thirty seven of John Cordigate by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter thirty seven Again at Foking. Thus Hester prevailed, and was taken back to the house of the man who had married her. By this time very much had been said about the matter publicly. It had been impossible to keep the question, whether John Cordigate's recent marriage had been true or fraudulent, out of the newspapers, and now the attempt that had been made to keep them apart by force gave an additional interest to the subject. There was an opinion, very general among elderly educated people, that Hester ought to have allowed herself to be detained at the Grange. "'We do not mean to lean heavily on the unfortunate young lady,' said the Isle of Ely Church Intelligencer, "'but we think that she would have better shown a becoming sense of her position "'had she submitted herself to her parents till the trial is over. "'Then the full sympathy of all classes would have been with her, "'and whether the law shall restore her to a beloved husband, "'or shall tell her that she has become the victim of a cruel seducer, "'she would have been supported by the approval and generous regard of all men.' "'It was thus, for the most part, that the elderly and the wise spoke and thought about it. Of course they pitied her, but they believed all evil of Cordigate, declaring that he too was bound by a feeling of duty to restore the unfortunate one to her father and mother until the matter should have been set at rest by the decision of a jury. But the people, especially the people of Utterdon and Netherton, and of Chesterton, and even of Cambridge, were all on the side of Cordigate and Hester as a married couple. They liked the persistency with which he had claimed his wife and applauded her to the echo for her love and firmness. Of course the scene at Puritan Grange had been much exaggerated. The two nights were prolonged to intervals varying from a week to a fortnight. During that time she was said always to have been at the window, holding up her baby. And Mrs. Bolton was accused of cruelties which she certainly had not committed. Some details of the affair made their way into the metropolitan press so that the expected trial became one of those causes célèbres by which the public is from time to time kept alive to the value and charm of newspapers. During all this, John Cordigate was specially careful not to seclude himself from public view, or to seem to be afraid of his fellow-creatures. He was constantly in Cambridge, generally riding thither on horseback, and on such occasions was always to be seen in Trumpington Street and Trinity Street. Between him and the Boltons there was, by tacit consent, no intercourse whatever after the attempted imprisonment. He never showed himself at Robert Bolton's office, nor, when they met in the street, did they speak to each other. Indeed, at this time, no gentleman or lady held any intercourse with Cordigate, except his father and Mr. Bromley the clergyman. The Babingtons were strongly of opinion that he should have surrendered the care of his wife, and Aunt Polly went so far as to write to him when she first heard of the affair at Chesterton, recommending him very strongly to leave her at the Grange. Then there was an angry correspondence, ended at last by a request from Aunt Polly that there might be no further intercourse between Babington and Foking till after the trial. Cordigate, though he bore all of this with an assured face, with but little outward sign of inward misgiving, suffered much much even from the estrangement of those with whom he had hitherto been familiar. To be cut by any one was a pain to him. Not to be approved of, not to be courted, not to stand well in the eyes of those around him, was to him positive and immediate suffering. 
he was supported, no doubt, by the full confidence of his father, by the friendliness of the parson, and by the energetic assurances of partisans who were all on his side, such as Mr. Ralph Holt the farmer. While Cordicate had been in Cambridge waiting for his wife's escape, Holt and one or two others were maturing a plan for breaking into Purington Grange and restoring the wife to her husband. All this supported him. Without it, he could hardly have carried himself as he did. But with all this, still, he was very wretched. "'It is that so many people should think me guilty,' he said to Mr. Bromley. She bore it better, though, of course, now that she was safe of folking, she had but little to do as to outward bearing. In the first place, no doubt as to his truth ever touched her for a moment, and not much doubt as to the result of the trial. It was to her an assured fact that John Cordigate was her husband, and she could not realise the idea that, such being the fact, a jury should say that he was not. But let all that be as it might, they two were one, and to adhere to him in every word, in every thought, in every little action, was to her the only line of conduct possible. She heard what Mr. Bromley said, she knew what her father-in-law thought, she was aware of the enthusiasm on her side of the folk at folking. It seemed to her that the opposition to her happiness was but a continuation of that which her mother had always made to her marriage. The Boltons were all against her. It was a terrible sorrow to her. But she knew how to bear it bravely. In the tenderness of her husband, who at this time was very tender to her, she had her great consolation. On the day of her return she had been very ill, so ill that Caldergate and his father had been much frightened. During the journey home in the carriage she had wept and laughed hysterically, now clutching the baby and then embracing her husband. Before reaching Foking she had been so warm with fatigue that he had hardly been able to support her on the seat. But after rest for a day or two she had rallied completely and she herself had taken pleasure and great pride in the fact that through it all her baby had never really been ill. "'He is a little man,' she said, boasting to the boy's father, "'and knows how to put up with troubles. And when his mamma was so bad he didn't peek and pine and cry so as to break her heart. Did he, my own, own brave little man?' And she could boast of her own health, too. "'Thank God I am strong, John. I can bear things which would break down other women.' You shall never see me give way, because I am a poor creature." Certainly she had a right to boast that she was not a poor creature. Caldergate, no doubt, was subject to troubles of which she knew nothing. It was quite clear to him that Mr. Seeley, his own lawyer, did in truth believe that there had been some form of marriage between him and Euphemia Smith. The attorney had never said so much, had never accused him. It would probably have been opposed to all the proprieties in such a matter that any direct accusation should have been made against him by his own attorney. But he could understand from the man's manner that his mind was not free from a strong suspicion. Mr. Seeley was eager enough as to the defence, but seemed to be eager as against opposing evidence rather than on the strength of evidence on his own side. He was not apparently desirous of making all the world know that such a marriage certainly never took place but that whether such a marriage had taken place or not, the jury ought to trust the witnesses. He relied not on strength of his own client, but on the weakness of his client's adversaries. It might probably be capable of proof that Crinkett and Adamson and the woman had conspired together to get money from John Cordigate, 
and if so, then their evidence as to the marriage would be much weakened. And he showed himself not averse to any tricks of trade which might tend to get a verdict. Could it be proved that John Cricket had been dishonest in his mining operations? Had Euphemia Smith allowed her name to be connected with that of any other man in Australia? What had been her antecedents? Was it not on the cards that Allen, the minister, had never undergone any ceremony of ordination? And, if not, might it not be shown that a marriage service performed by him would be no marriage service at all? Could not the jury be made to think, or at least some of the jury, that out there, in that rough, lawless wilderness, marriage ceremonies were very little understood? These were the wiles to which he seemed disposed to trust whereas Cordigate was anxious that he should instruct some eloquent, indignant advocate to declare boldly that no English gentleman could have been guilty of conduct so base, so dastardly, and so cruel. Um, "'You see, Mr. Cordigate,' the lawyer said on one occasion, "'to make the best of it our own hands are not quite clean. You did promise the other lady marriage.' "'No doubt. No doubt I was a fool, and I paid for my folly. I bought her off.' having fallen into the common scrape, having been pleased by her prettinesses and clevernesses and women's ways, I did as so many other men have done. I got out of it as best I could, without treachery and without dishonour. I bought her off. Had she refused to take my money, I should probably have married her, and probably have broke my brains out afterwards. All that has to be acknowledged, much to my shame." Most of us would have to blush if the worst of our actions were brought out before us in a court of law. But there was an end to it. Then they come over here and endeavour to enforce their demand for money by a threat. "'That envelope is so unfortunate,' said the lawyer. "'Most unfortunate. Perhaps we shall get someone before the day comes who will tell the jury that any marriage up at Ahalala must have been a farce.' All this was unsatisfactory and became so more and more as the weeks went by. The confidential clerk whom the Boltons had sent out when the first threat reached them early in November, the threat conveyed in that letter from the woman which Cordigate had shown to Robert Bolton, returned about the end of March. The two brothers, Robert and William, decided upon sending him to Mr. Seeley, so that any information obtained might be at Cordigate's command, to be used, if of any use, in his defence but there was in truth very little of it. The clerk had been up to Noble and Ahalala, and had found no one there who knew enough of the matter to give evidence about it. The population of mining districts in Australia is peculiarly a shifting population, so that the most of those who had known Cordigate and his mode of life there were gone. The old woman who kept Henniker's Hotel at Noble had certainly heard that they were married, but then she had added that many people there called themselves man and wife from convenience. A woman would often like a respectable name, where there was no parson near at hand to entitle her to it. Then the parsons would be dilatory and troublesome and expensive, and a good many people were apt to think that they could do very well without ceremonies. She evidently would have done no good to either side as a witness. This clerk had found Ahalala almost deserted, occupied chiefly by a few Chinese who were contented to search for the specks of gold which more ambitious miners had allowed to slip through their fingers. The woman had certainly called herself Mrs. Caldigate, and had been called so by many. But she had afterwards been called Mrs. Crinkett, when she and Crinkett had combined their means with the views of buying the Polyuca mine. 
she was described as an enterprising, greedy woman, upon whom the love of gold had had almost more than its customary effect. And she had for a while been noted and courted for her success, having been the only female miner who was supposed to have realised money in these parts. She had been known to the banks at Nobble, also even at Sydney, and had been supposed at one time to have been worth twenty or thirty thousand pounds. Then she had joined herself with Crinkett, and all their money had been supposed to vanish in the Polyuca mine. No doubt there had been enough in that to create animosity of the most bitter kind against Cordigate. He, in his search for gold, had been uniformly successful, was spoken of among the noble miners as the one man who in gold-digging had never had a reverse. He had gone away just before the bad time came on Polyuca, and then had succeeded after he had gone in extracting from these late unfortunate partners of his every farthing that he had left them. There was ample cause for animosity. Alan, the minister, who had certainly been at Ahalala, was, as certainly, dead. He had gone out from Scotland as a Presbyterian clergyman, and no doubt had ever been felt as to his being that which he called himself, and a letter from him was produced which had undoubtedly been written by himself. Robert Bolton had procured a photograph of the note which the woman produced as having been written by Alan to Cordigate. The handwriting did not appear to him to be the same, but an expert had given an opinion that they both might have been written by the same person. Of Dick Shand no tidings had been found. It was believed that he had gone from Queensland to some of the islands, probably to the Fijis, but he had sunk so low among men as to have left no trace behind him. In Australia no one cares to know whether whence Sir Shepherd has gone or whither he goes. A miner belongs to a higher class and is more considered. The result of all which was, in the opinion of the Boltons, adverse to John Cordigate, and, in discussing this with his client, Mr. Seeley acknowledged that nothing had as yet come to light sufficient to shake the direct testimony of the woman, corroborated as it was by three persons, all of whom would swear that they had been present at the marriage. "'No doubt they endeavoured to get money from you,' said Mr. Seeley, "'and I may be well assured in my own mind that money was their sole object, but then it cannot be denied that their application to you for money had a sound basis, one which, though you might fairly refuse to allow it, takes away from the application all idea of criminality. Crinket has never asked for money as a bribe to hold his tongue. In a matter of trade between them and you, you were very successful. They were very unfortunate. A man asking for restitution in such circumstances will hardly be regarded as dishonest. It was to no purpose that Cordigate declared that he would willingly have remitted a portion of the money had he known the true circumstances. He had not done so, and now the accusation was made. The jury, feeling that the application had been justifiable, would probably keep the two things distinct. That was Mr. Seedy's view, and thus, in these days, Cordigate gradually came to hate Mr. Seedy. There was no comfort to be had from Mr. Seedy. Mr. Bromley was much more comfortable, though unfortunately in such a matter less to be trusted. "'As to the minister's handwriting,' he said, "'that'll go for nothing, even if he had written the note.' "'Which he didn't,' said Cordigate. Mm, "'Exactly. But should it be believed to have been his, it would prove nothing. 
and as to the envelope, I cannot think that any jury would disturb the happiness of a family on such evidence as that. It all depends on the credibility of the people who swear that they were present. And I can only say that were I one of the jury, and were the case brought before me, as I see it now, I certainly should not believe them. There is here one letter to you declaring that if you will comply with her demands she will not annoy you, and declaring also her purpose of marrying someone else. How can any juryman believe her after that? Mr. Seedy says that twelve men will not be less likely to think me a bigamist because she has expressed her readiness to commit bigamy, that if alone she would not have a leg to stand upon, but that she is amply corroborated, whereas I have not been able to find a single witness to support me. It seems to me that in this way any man might be made the victim of a conspiracy. Then Mr. Bromley said that all that would be too patent to a jury to leave any doubt upon the matter. But John Cordygate himself, though he took great comfort in the society of the clergyman, did in truth rely rather on the opinion of the lawyer. The old squire never doubted his son for a moment, and in his intercourse with Hester showed her all the tenderness and trust of a loving parent. But he too manifestly feared the verdict of a jury. According to him, things in the world around him generally were very bad. What was to be expected from an ordinary jury such as Cambridgeshire would supply but prejudice, thick-headed stupidity, or at the best a strict obedience to the dictum of a judge? "'It is a case,' he said, "'in which no jury about here will have sense enough to understand and weigh the facts. There will be on one side the evidence of four people, all swearing the same thing.' It may be that one or more of them will break down under cross-examination, and that all will then be set straight. But if not, the twelve men in a box will believe them, because they are four, not understanding that in such a case four may conspire as easily as two or three. There will be the judge, no doubt, but English judges are always favourable to convictions. The judge begins with the idea that the man before him would hardly have been brought there had he not been guilty. In all this, and very much more that he said both to Mr. Bromley and his son, he was expressing his contempt for the world around him, rather than any opinion of his own on this particular matter. "'I often think,' said he, "'that we have to bear more from the stupidity than from the wickedness of the world.'" It should be mentioned that about a week after Hester's escape from Chesterton there came to her a letter from her mother. "'Dearest Hester,' You do not think that I do not love you because I tried to protect you from what I believe to be sin and evil and temptation? You do not think that I am less your mother because I caused you suffering? If your eye offend you, pluck it out. Was I not plucking out my own eye when I caused pain to you? You ought to come back to me and your father. You ought to do so even now. But whether you come back or not, will you not remember that I am the mother who bore you? and have always loved you? And when further distress shall come upon you, will you not return to me? Your unhappy but most loving mother, Mary Bolton. In answer to this, Hester, in a long letter, acknowledged her mother's love, and said that the memory of those two days at Chesterton should lessen neither her affection nor her filial duty. But, she went on to say, that in whatever distress might come upon her, she should turn to her husband for comfort and support, whether he should be with her or whether he should be away from her. But, she added, concluding her letter, beyond my husband and my child, you and papa 
will always be the dearest to me. End of chapter 37